This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. My name is Hal Hester. Welcome to Vine Life and welcome to another installment of our series in the Gospel of John. It's good to be with you. You know, as you uh, may have noticed in the uh, video entry, uh, you know, as we were ramping up uh, talking there a little bit about this whole idea of eternal life. And eternal life is the major theme throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, It is uh, throughout the book of John, uh, we have the words life appearing over and over again. But what is not obvious necessarily uh, when reading it in English is that that word life is not referring to like biological life. The word bios would be the word that would be there if that was the case. But instead, it's using these words sozo and zoe, which refer to a type of life or a quality of life. And so throughout the book, there is that kind of the use of sozo and zoe to constantly reference life, Uh, but then in other times using that fuller expression uh, of eternal life or abundant life, indicating that there is a life, there's an expectancy through the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, through the agency of Christ, that you and I can experience life on a whole nother plane, even here in the midst of life. In other words, that the abundant life and the life that he's talking about that he desires for us to have is not just simply a, a quality of existence, but is a sense of experiencing the eternal life, the life of, uh, of God in the kingdom here in this present age, and that it would continue to work in us and through us as we make our way to the next age. Now, today we are looking at John the Baptist and his disciples. Uh, you know, what's interesting, in, when you look at most of the Gospels, uh, there's just this brief introduction to John the Baptist, and then we just don't see him again, uh, you know, really. And uh, here we get another peek at the life of John the Baptist and what's happening with he and his disciples kind of in this whole process of as things are changing, as things are unfolding, there's a lot happening. And in this particular moment, there is a conflict between the disciples of John the Baptist and, for the lack of a better you know, explanation, uh, because it's so vague here, somewhat of a, a Jewish interloper. He could be a Pharisee, he could be a scribe, we're not sure. But apparently, he is, for all intents and purposes, heckling them as they're out baptizing. He's like trying to argue with them. He wants to argue about purification laws, apparently, uh, wants to argue and point to the fact that Jesus and his disciples are, you know, doing better and that John the Baptist thing seems to be fading. And so there's just this whole heckling thing going on. And what's really important to us in this whole conversation is the heart of John as he replies to his disciples, as he speaks to his folks, and is pointing them back toward Jesus, which is always the modus operandi of John the Baptist. He is always pointing us towards Jesus. So, uh, and, and I think that in particular, as we look at this, we're going to see not only in him knowing his place in the plan of God, but I think what is instructive for us is us also knowing the same thing. So with that in mind, let's get into our text. We're in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 22 this morning. John 3, 22. If you're using a phone or tablet, would you please set that to silent for the sake of those around you? 
if you're reading, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, but please follow along in whatever translation you have, the one in your lap, always my favorite. Let's take a look. And after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who is the bride, uh, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand, and whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So, as I said, you know, to be clear, Jesus' disciples, um, they were baptizing in Judea, and John's disciples were baptizing north of there in an area that was predominantly Samaritan. Can I get that map up for just a moment? We're going to see if we can't get this little thing to work, this little clicker pointer thing. And, of course, it's going to stop working right now. Oh, yeah, Great. You know, believe it or not, I actually tested this thing like three or four times, so I wouldn't do this to you. So about the middle of the map, <laughs> you can see the, largest, the larger body of water up there is the Sea of Galilee, and then, you know, going kind of top to bottom here along the Jordan River, right down the middle here, right in about the middle, if I could, you know, like you can see this black dot over here on the red line and move right to the middle and that is where John the Baptist was baptizing uh, and uh, so Jesus and his disciples are down in Judea in the southern end uh, in Jewish territory this is predominantly Samaritan territory and so this discussion ensues and it's I want you to be really clear is that this is not a conflict between Jesus' disciples and John's disciples. The conflict is with this Jewish person, uh, like I said, probably a Pharisee or a scribe, 
who starts arguing over them, with them over the meaning of baptism and Jewish purification rites, including baptism. Now, one of the things that you need to know in this whole process of understanding the discussion about what's ensuing here is that you know, this whole thing about baptism is that baptism was not new to the New Testament. Baptism was a practice that started in uh, a kind of a midrash practice as they were in exile in Babylon. And so being in exile in Babylon, not having access to the temple, not having access to the tabernacle, uh, a number of practices developed that really became kind of the backbone of Judaism. One of them was the synagogue. If you had at least 10 families and they were giving, they were tithing to that, then you could have a rabbi and they would bring a rabbi in and the rabbi would do teaching and that's how they would support them. They had to have a minimum of 10 families to do that and that would be called a synagogue, uh, basically a Hebrew version of the word church. They both mean the same thing. Uh, the Greek root for both, uh, ecclesia, the called out, the people who were called out together. And, and so then they had these practices because they could not go to temple one of them was that they would practice ritual washings or baptisms in which they would bury themselves in water. And it was often, in fact, actually uh, done on a daily basis in some of the different sects, some of the different synagogues. Uh, and so it was a common practice, this idea, well, we can't go and offer our sacrifices uh, for, uh, for our sins. And so they would do these washings as just kind of a way of making a statement that they trusted that God was uh, caring for them. But they deeply associated uh, all of this uh, with the idea of the forgiveness of sins. It was deeply connected in that, uh, and that this expectation was is that God would meet them there in those things. It is practiced even today among the ultra-Orthodox Jews. And so uh, a common practice among Hasidic Jews and things is still to do baptisms, uh, even though those things are obviously not spoken of specifically in the Old Testament. So once they lost access to this, they, the, the baptisms were viewed kind of like a sin offering was the language that was used. And, uh, and then that continued when they came back into the land and they were rebuilding the, the temple and they were you know, fixing everything. Uh, the people continued those practices. We know, of course, the synagogue continued because we read about Jesus preaching in the synagogue. And so uh, that kind of part is, you, you say, well, I, I knew that part. But uh, one of the other things that you may not know, unless you've spent some time reading Jewish history, is that all along the Jordan, what they would call the Transjordan area there, just up and down the Jordan, there were uh, little sects within that S-E-C-T-S, okay? There's little groups, okay, that are of affinity groups, and they would have practices that were unique to them in terms of their uh, honoring and worshiping God, and a number of them distrusted the temple for the same reasons that Jesus calls the temple into question at some times. Uh, they're looking at the whole thing with the Herodians, there at, who uh, have seized the uh, dynasty and are ruling over the Jews, although they are in league with Caesar. Uh, they have the whole thing of what's going on with the Pharisees and their practices of midrash, 
uh, the extra things that they have added to the law. Jesus, remember, is constantly rebuking them about that they have put their traditions and their ideas over above the law, and that in fact they've in many places, in many circumstances, replaced the law, the plain teaching of the law, with their ideas, with their, with their philosophies about religion. And so uh, in the midst of this, uh, we see this, this conflict constantly brewing. And uh, so among the Pharisees, among the Herodians, among the Sadducees, Sadducees were primarily the priestly class uh, and uh, did not believe in the resurrection, had a number of other additional doctrines. They did not like those sects that were along the you know, Transjordan there. They did not like their practices of baptism because what they were doing by still doing those baptisms and not going to the temple was what they were saying is, the temple is bankrupt. It's bankrupt because of who's in charge of it. Remember that even we've talked about, even through this series a couple of times, I'll bring it up again, is that there was even kind of like a battle over who was the chief priest at the time. Uh, and, and so there were some people who followed one chief priest and some who followed another. One was, had the heart of the people. The other one was appointed by Herod as a political post. And so there was this constant battle over who was the real priest. It was a very politically charged situation into which Jesus wanted nothing to do with it. John the Baptist is constantly calling the Herods out for their filth, as he put it, and, uh, and, and watching their behavior. Well, remember that there's a whole lot more going on than just John the Baptist and just Jesus at this time. There's a number of people claiming to be Messiah, things like that. There's these different sects groups, uh, one of them being the Essenes, who lived in what we call the Qumran communities. You probably think in terms of the Dead Sea Scrolls, when we discovered a lot of uh, manuscripts that had been lost for generations, and some of our oldest manuscripts now available to us are because of what was found in that Qumran community where they hid those sea scrolls. So uh, in, this, uh, uh, in those groups like the Essenes, the Qumran communities, and the Transjordan groups, uh, there was this clear message uh, that in doing those baptisms in the Jordan, they were saying, your temple and your leadership is bankrupt. You can imagine how popular that was with the Pharisees. You can imagine how popular that was with the Sadducees and the Herodians. This is one of the few things that those three groups could get along on, is that their dislike of the groups that baptize. Now we have John the Baptist out there, and so he's baptizing and he's talking about, uh, he's preaching from Isaiah and pointing to Isaiah 40 and talking about the voice of him who calls out in the wilderness, making straight the path for Yahweh. Interesting enough, guess what was the favorite verse of the Essenes for reasons to baptize people? Guess, just guess. If you don't say Isaiah 40, guess again. You know, it's just okay. So, so they were constantly heralding this verse. John the Baptist is out there, and you can imagine what it looks like to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, and to the Herodians. They're watching this, and they're just going, 
Oh, no, another one of these. And now they're like gaining followers. People that are going to temple are also coming out here. And they're saying things like, man, everybody's following after these guys. Are any of the Pharisees, are any of the Sag, are any of us as deceived as all these stupid people? I mean, that's literally what they were saying. They were calling all the people going after John the Baptist and going after Jesus, they were basically saying, these people have all got evil spirits. They're all stupid. They're all deceived. None of us are that stupid. Very unflattering, as you can imagine. So here this interloper comes out, and he's like going after John's disciples. And then in the midst of it, he just like decides to throw a little, another little caveat into this. You know, if... Uh, He's, he's wanting to disrupt, he's wanting to create problems. So now it's not enough just to say, hey, these baptisms are invalid. What you're doing in terms of purification are invalid. But then he decides, you know, he's going to poke the bear a little more. And uh, he says, you know, something to the effect of, and besides that, your popularity is kind of waning. Remember that guy that John pointed to? Everybody, he's... You know where he is? He's down in southern Judea doing baptisms. Clearly, everybody's going after Jesus, and y'all are the has-beens. You know, you were the hot thing going on, but look, you know, I mean, look, just, just watch, and just there's another preacher arising, and this is what happens over and over again. We just go from one crazy preacher in the wilderness to another, and so you're all a bunch of frauds, and besides that, he's a better fraud than you. Everybody's pursuing him, and so what happens in the midst of all of this is that they get all wrapped around the axle. I mean, just, I mean, just kind of imagine that maybe the devil would use idle gossip and even doctrine to sow discord between kingdom-hearted people. No, can't imagine that. Anyhow, and so uh, in the midst of it, you know, uh, the, the, this guy, be really clear, he's not on Jesus' side any more than he's on John's side. John's disciples come and they're like, they're worried about popularity. They're worried about their ministry. They're worried about where things are going. And here's John the Baptist, gracefully and powerfully changing the entire direction of the conversation. His illustration of the best man not only diffuses all the emotional garbage, but he's powerfully illustrating the point with imagery that was not only used by the Apostle Paul when he starts talking about the relationship between the church and, the, and, and, and Jesus, you know, between Christ and the church, but he's actually pulling from imagery that is uh, found all throughout the Old Testament describing Israel is the bride of God. So he's just, he's just borrowing that imagery and pointing it more specifically to this relationship of Messiah. Now, here's the thing is that culturally, the role um, of you know, the uh, best man in the minds of Judean social life was a very special relationship. For one, it was the best man who protected the couple's night together, their first night together. He would also be the one 
who when the, in the shout of triumph that um, they had uh, sealed their marriage, would be the one to announce to everybody that in fact uh, the union had been sealed and how great it was. You're really glad you didn't get married in the first century, aren't you? But it was a very special role of declaring that the union was consummated, protecting the couple, making sure that they were defended from interlopers, from problem people, uh, even people, you know, uh, uh, people who would try to steal the show, uh, so to speak. And there would have been nothing more unfitting in that role than for a best man to be, A, inappropriate with the bride, or one, to seek the attention for himself. And John the Baptist uses this imagery so well just to point that all the appropriate tension should be on the bride and the groom. And, and I would suggest to you that in this imagery, it's not only important for John the Baptist's role, but it's also for us as followers of Jesus. Uh, uh, our role as followers of Jesus is never to be the center of attention. It's one of the things that concerns me sometimes even in kind of our, our modern uh, you know, um, way of doing church that there's often just like way too much attention on you know, celebrity kind of status. Uh, I think it's problematic for anyone who teaches and preaches on a Sunday morning, anyone who uh, is called to lead worship or anything else. Uh, uh, the moment you kind of you know, come to this place, it's really important uh, for you, for me, to remember like that my role is not to be the star, but to point to, to, point to him who is. And I would say, likewise, that like when you and I are doing ministry, whether uh, we are uh, helping someone in their home, uh, or we are helping somebody out of a jam or a situation, uh, when we're praying with people, uh, you know, whatever, however God might be using you in someone's life, like, you know, the big thing that you and I need to keep in perspective is, you're not the hero of the story, right? That, that we want to keep pointing it back to Jesus. Uh, and that does a number of things for us. One, uh, when it, you know, in the case where sometimes some things go sideways, uh, no, no matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, sometimes things go sideways. Uh, one of the re realities is that you and I can step back and realize it wasn't about us in the first place. That's a good thing. Uh, two, uh, you know, sometimes in the midst of it, uh, it is good to remind ourselves, uh, you know, just simply of the fact that, um, that you aren't the one who rescued them. You aren't the one who saved them. And it's really not upon you to do those things. Instead, we just want to prepare hearts for Jesus and cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And so I don't have to be really like slick in my presentation of the gospel. I don't have to be the best person at praying or whatever else because uh, over and over again, what I, I want to do is, is push people back to the one who actually can save, the one who does purify. Also, once I've settled in my heart that I'm not the hero of the story, uh, it's also really a lot easier to stay out of the way, especially if I don't need credit. 
I don't know about you, but one of the things that uh, used to bother me whenever I was a new Christian uh, would be sometimes I would be spending a lot of energy uh, with somebody, uh, having Bible studies at my house and different things like that. And, uh, and we would be getting to a point where I thought they were ready to receive Christ, you know, and I'd be all excited. And then all of a sudden they would come back and tell me, yeah, I was over at this guy's house the other night and, and I ended up, re, you know, I, we, I accepted Jesus and, you know, and then I went to his church on Sunday morning and I got baptized at his church and all this stuff. And they're like telling you all this stuff and they're like waiting for you to be all excited. And I can remember just like this feeling of going like, what? <laughs> like I just spent the last six months with you and this guy like just walked in and like invites you to his church and you did all that and you're going to his church now. Great. Great, you know, and, um, but see, that's my humanity and my own pride, right? I mean, what should have been, what is more and more, is the sense of celebration. You know, I'm grateful. I'm grateful that they had that conversation. I'm grateful that those moments came to them by whomever's hand it came uh, and that they've come to know Jesus. And, and I, I'd love for them to be in just a good Bible-believing church where people are discipling them and caring for them. Like That's the most important thing, isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> it's when I realize that I'm not the hero of the story. John continues to clarify his role then as the front runner. Uh, if you've been with us kind of from the beginning of the series, you know that one of the unique features of the Gospel of John is that unlike uh, Mark, uh, this one is really front-loaded with tons of declarations about Jesus as being God in the flesh. Just chapter 1 alone, there were three separate declarations. Uh, we see it again in chapter 2, we see it again here in chapter 3, and and so one of those declarations in chapter 1 was, of course, the quote from Isaiah 40 that uh, I mentioned earlier uh, of preparing the way of Yahweh. Uh, John the Baptist is making the way for Jesus, but he is quoting from Isaiah 40. It's not just simply prepare, you, prepare the way of the Lord, but that in Hebrew it's actually in using the word Yahweh, preparing the way for Yahweh. And so he's making this declaration there uh, in chapter 1, and now John the Baptist is making the declaration again here in chapter 3 that Jesus is not just a prophet like himself or even an earthly messianic king, but he's actually telling his disciples, Jesus is from above. Jesus is the one in whom you need to give your hearts, your affection. My joy is made complete in declaring these things. Your joy should be made complete and that He is the Messiah. I've made it clear again and again and again. I am not the Messiah. You need to turn your hearts, give yourself to, uh, to Jesus and, that, and then he begins to just articulate about how that not only is he the revelation who's come down from heaven and whom, he says, but that in him there is eternal life, drawing a hard distinction between his role as a messenger of the kingdom and Jesus' role as the message, as the one who matters most, as the God and King, as the giver of life as the one who saves. That not only served to stop any dissension among 
his followers in that moment and point them towards Jesus. But then I want you to also think about this. When the gospel of uh, John was written in the latter part of the first century, that there were still a lot of people who had heard the message of John and were confused about Jesus and John the Baptist and who the Messiah was and what they were looking for. And we see that uh, multiple times, actually, in uh, the book of Acts. Uh, there in the, the, the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 3, chapter 18, chapter 19, we have three different situations. Uh, we have first there uh, chapter 3 on the day of Pentecost, those who were present. And the message is being proclaimed, and something happens that's really distinct there as the Spirit of God falls. Uh, you say, well, yeah, that's pretty distinct in itself, they, you know, the whole thing. But, but watch also that what happens, these are the same folks that have been like going out to John and they're gathered there for worship and they ask Peter, like, how do we respond to this? And Peter says to him, we'll be baptized, every one of you. Wait, every one of you? What about the people that were baptized to the baptism of John? Be baptized, every one of you. There's a, something distinctive. There is a huge transition that's taking place. And there's even the expectation that the baptism of John was being entirely replaced so that even those who were baptized of John needed to be baptized afresh in this water baptism, we're not talking about spirit baptism, although that was part of the package, but, but uh, specifically a water baptism. Then we look again, Acts chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila teaching Apollos more accurately the way of Jesus. The discussion is that Apollos has known the baptism of John, and then now he's being invited uh, to learn the way of Jesus more accurately. He'd been teaching about Jesus. He was a follower of John the Baptist. And as he's articulating these things, they teach him the way more accurately. They reteach him. And, uh, and then he's baptized. Uh, Acts chapter 19, the Apostle Paul going so far as even asking everyone who was uh, experiencing, they had been baptized of John, and then now the Spirit of God fell on them. And they're speaking in tongues, and all this stuff is going on, and, and uh, the invitation on the part of the Apostle Paul is that there is a necessary, it is necessary for a clear and accurate confession of Jesus and being baptized into the baptism of Jesus. Very distinct. Kind of significant if you think about it in that terms. A, a lot of times we, we, in the modern church, we tend to make kind of a little light of baptism as though it was just something, just a little add-on or uh, something like that. Uh, I do want to, I, I, I would point out to you that um, the apostles thought it significant enough that they had them baptized again. 
And so I would say if you've ever made light of baptism because you say, well, I'm saved by faith, not by water, I would agree with you. You're not saved by water. But I would also point to you that every conversion in the book of Acts was followed by water baptism. Everyone. No exceptions in the book of Acts. And that it was significant to them, it mattered to them what they understood at the point that they were baptized. So I would not easily dismiss those things as like having no value or that, um, or that somehow my faith is superior if I refuse. Because I, I just think there's something that just doesn't make sense when I say I'm following Jesus, but I don't want to do what he said. That one's for free. So... I kind of point all of this out to you to simply say this, is that, that in the early church, right, there was uh, these people uh, like Apollos, like these other disciples there in, you know, in Acts 19, who were still basically kind of followers uh, of, you know, the, of John the Baptist, and as the letter that John is writing uh, to share and to spread the story of the gospel goes out, part of it is, is just right there in that, in that first century context that John's writing to them to kind of clarify that there is something significant that has happened in terms of the transition, that they have moved from a declaration of that he is coming to he has come, that there is a repentance from the former way of life. Now there is an expectation of looking toward dying to self. The, the baptism changes in its direction from just simply one of repentance to one of the idea that I am buried with Christ, no longer I that live, but he that lives in me. The sense of expectation that I have laid down my former manner of life. And then, like we've said throughout the Gospel of John over and over again, that I am I am making a declaration of, I am moving toward, I am through the power of the Holy Spirit experiencing an entirely new kind of life. As we said last week, looking from the whole experience of Nicodemus, that there's a sense in which I'm born again, and that has completely reoriented and disoriented me from my former manner of life, so that this new manner of life, this eternal life, this sozo life, this Zoe life, that is unlike my physical life, that it is transcending, it is transforming me, even as I'm living right here in the middle of everything, everybody and everyone else in the midst of their bios life. And somehow I find myself, whether I'm 10 or 20 or 50 or 70 or whatever else, completely disoriented and broken away from my old manner of life, and I've begun this new life, that is so transformative that I'm like an infant in absolute need and dependence on the work of God. I, I'm learning to live a whole new way. And as I learn to live this whole new way, that I'm, I'm, I'm also giving that away. I, I, I want others to experience not just life and not just the improvement of that life, of bios, but the expectation of a life that gives meaning to the world, to the cosmos in which I find myself in. John the Baptist and John the Apostle wanted to make sure that we understood that he wasn't just talking about 
forgiving sins. And he wasn't just talking about doing life a little better. He was inviting them to come to the Son for a whole new, an entirely different kind of life. He was inviting them to jettison everything they knew about life before, to die to themselves, to die to their former manner of life. I know it's not, that, like, it's not, it's not real sexy, right? You can't sexy up the gospel. I, I know a lot of people try, but you, you just don't. The real message of the gospel is I die to this life and I take on this whole new manner of life. I'm becoming a whole new person. And the gospel of John will just point again and again and again toward the hope that you and I would leave all of our understanding about how the way the world works, the way we understand God and everything else, and that we would cling to him who is life. So you and I have this kind of invitation out there. Two things on my heart this morning is we talk about that passage. One is, is just all the kind of things, the issues that get in the way of making Jesus kind of the center point of my life, right? There are things that, that uh, uh, my own uh, wants and desires, not that those things are bad, but sometimes uh, they are, I use them to redefine life. And that life for me is not about him being the center, but about how he can, well, how he can make all my wants and desires come true. And you know, it's a popular message, but it's actually not the message of the gospel. I know we can grab a few Bible verses and we can kind of smear them on stuff like that, and we can, we can give you the, that impression, but I... I want to say that the core message of the gospel is not let me invite you into my life so that you can make this life, my life, my wants, my desires actualized. It's actually this message that he's the center. And when I put him back in that proper place in the center of my life, that I build my life around him when it says that he gives us the desires of our hearts, it doesn't mean he gives you everything you want. It means that he puts those desires in you that are in keeping with who he is. And so he changes. He, he changes my whole worldview, my orientation about everything, about what life is about, who I'm about, how I define myself. And uh, so I think that's the first thing for us as believers is, you know, is that... Is that really true? Has, has Jesus redefined the center of my life? I think a lot of us are, are kind of doing this church thing and this kind of this Christianity thing, and what we would say is, I'm not sure it works. We're wondering why it seems to work for some and not for others. I've heard that conversation a lot over the years. And I, I got to tell you that 
The only way it works is if he really is the center and that you reorient your life, your vision, your values for your life around that. Who you are, why you do what you do. If it doesn't grow out of a center place of who Jesus is, you're going to be very frustrated. Because that's the invitation of the gospel. Come and die to yourself. The second thing that, you know, is kind of on my heart this morning is, is that we are actually doing baptisms, uh, you know, at the end of the month, uh, next week. And, uh, and, you know, I would say to, you know, to a number of folks, if you've never been baptized um, and, uh, and you've kind of like brushed it off, I, I would just not do that. There's, there's something inherently... I, I, I understand the mindset. I want to be clear that I am saved by grace, I'm saved by Jesus, that I'm not putting my trust in water to save me. I agree 100%. I can take you out there and slam dunk you in the ocean left and right, it means nothing, right? I mean, that really, it really doesn't. You know, hopefully all of you got a shower this morning, so it doesn't, it doesn't you know, well, it meant something to the person sitting next to you, but that's... Something else entirely. What makes baptism significant is the intent of the heart that says, one, I'm dying to self. It is a proclamation to the world around us. I'm dying to myself. I'm, I'm being raised with Christ in newness of life, and I just, I want the whole world to know. It's a proclamation much in like which communion is. Communion, Paul says, is a declaration. We proclaim his death until he returns. Uh, When we're baptized, we're doing the same thing. We are making a proclamation of whom we put our hope in and of what our life is all about. We are saying, I've put away all the old self, all the old way of life, and I want everyone to know that that's so. One of the things I thought was really interesting in the second century, uh, in the early church, you know, they would use um, what we now call Lent, that 40 days um, leading up to Easter is a time of where they would, dis- they would bring disciples, catechumens, in, and over the course of that six, almost seven weeks, they would spend time not only in the study of prayer, but they would also like denounce all their you know, every demonic thing in their life, every ungodly thing in their life. They would spend some time just kind of like cleansing their heart and their mind, uh, breaking off any, you know, ties that they had emotionally, socially to other things. And so that the expectation was that when they came to that baptism, in fact, they would strip down naked, men in one place, women in another, just so you don't, you know, uh, and uh, they would be baptized Naked, specifically as a sense of just like declaring, I really have died to that old life, and I really am born again into this new life. It's a sense of expectation that was uh, such a part of that. And I would say to you, as we are moving toward baptisms, like if you've never been baptized, one, making that declaration is significant and important. Two, Like, if you know someone who is making that declaration, 
like, can I encourage you to like, not just simply go, oh, well, that's polite. That's, you know, that's something we do when people graduate from high school and all kinds of things like that. But could I ask you as a follower of Christ to commit yourself when they come out of that water that you will pray for those persons who just got baptized about what, what you know, God is doing in their life, about the commitment and the public declaration they've just made. That might be just an energizing moment in their faith. Uh, can I point out to you that after Jesus was baptized is when he was taken into the wilderness, right, and, uh, you know, tempted for 40 days. I just think there's some significant things spiritually that happen in a person's life, and, uh, you know, I really want to be a part of being a blessing and supporting those persons. But again, I want to stress, no, water can't save you. Only Jesus can save you, but that should never turn into an attitude of making light of those things. What's that? And nobody's getting baptized naked, no. Let's stand together. So Father, um, this morning, I'm just reminded once again that the place that you take in our hearts when we fully surrender to you, that you become the rising and the setting sun, that we're called to be a people who find our greatest sense of identity and purpose in our pursuit of you and pursuit of an, the life everlasting, that abundant life is ours not because we just simply melt away, not because we're uh, trying to become uh, one with the force or something like that, but that we find ourselves in Christ, that we find out who you created us to be, and that in fulfilling that calling that there is great joy, even as John the Baptist knew great joy through times of trial and difficulty and circumstance, that we too will know, can know great joy through our pursuit of you, through allowing you to redefine our lives. And so, Lord, we're asking, would you move and work in our inner man that we would be a people who would relish the opportunity to make you first and foremost, that we would be a people who find our sense of uh, hope and identity in making you not just king of the cosmos, but king of our lives, king of our hearts. That we'd make you the redefining point of all that we think about the world and how we interact with the world. And so we just invite you, Holy Spirit of God, would you begin a deep work in us that moves us from this place of self-centeredness to the place of being Jesus-centered. Father, we pray also this morning that uh, if there's anything that we find that's like significantly in the way of doing that, career, 
school, home, children, grandchildren, retirement plans. Whatever it might be. Relationships. Whatever might be standing in the way of making you the center. Lord, we just we come before you now to lay that all down. To give you those things and to trust you with them. To trust you with our time, our talents, our abilities, and all the good gifts that you've given us in family, education, career. We just put those back in your hands and say, Lord, would you be Lord of those things as well as Lord of my heart? Lord of my life, not just my forgiveness. Let me thank you. And Lord, we pray for those who have never followed through on uh, baptism. They have confessed you, they've walked with you, but they, they've not uh, uh, made that declaration. They've not been uh, baptized, buried with you uh, in demonstration of their, con their, their confidence in you and uh, in declaration of having died to self and living for Christ. And so uh, we pray for all of those uh, who are wrestling with that decision. And we pray that you would give them strength and courage but also, Lord, help them to be integrous with that decision, that they would not do it for the sake of attention. They would not do it for the sake of pleasing uh, the church or the pastor or a family member, but they would do it because they have this desire to make a declaration that you alone are worthy, that you alone are life. And so we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, prayer team members, go ahead and come on up. I hope that you are able to join us next week. I know it's Memorial Day weekend and you probably got a lot going on, but I would love to encourage you to be here and to celebrate with those who are getting baptized and uh, hope to see you soon. God bless. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to The Empowered Word.